All right. Well, we have assignments coming up due. The other assignment that's due this week on Friday is the first solar observation. And again, I just need one. If you've gotten more, that's great. As long as you get at least one, turn in to me either on the table, on a separate sheet of paper, the date, the time, the sky conditions, and the height of your object and the length of your shadow. Again, that's all I need. You don't need to go through any calculations or anything yet. We will do that later in the course, but you don't need to worry about that for now. Um, so I need one of those by Friday, which means if you're submitting it in class, turn it in to me Friday. If you're going to submit it online, there is a Dropbox on D2L that you can submit that to. So if you don't get the observation and hope then by then and hope that Friday is clear, you can get it on Friday. You get one on Friday, you can submit it to the Dropbox on D2L. As long as I get it by 6 o'clock Saturday, I consider it on time. So one solar observation. If you have more, feel free to turn in more. I will look at whatever you turn in and give you some feedback on that when we come back on the 3rd. Also coming up this week will be the first quiz that is online on D2L that is available starting on Friday. We'll be through chapter 2. If not completing it today, we're close. We should be through it today or be on to, on to it on, or chapter 1, I'm sorry. On Friday, we'll be, certainly be through with it. Uh, that'll be a set of 12 multiple choice questions on the quizzes. I just give you multiple choice, so there's no essay questions or anything else. It is timed at 15 minutes, so you are allowed to use notes. Don't spend 10 minutes looking up the answer to the first question and getting that one right and then trying to rush through and quickly answer all the others. Um, best thing to do, you can go back and forth, is to page through, answer anything you know real quick, go through all the questions. That way you've also seen them in your, in your head. Uh, keep some notes. Keep those summary questions that I had with you. You know, if you've, if you've used those and you've sketched answers to them, it doesn't hurt to have those with you. It's a lot quicker to glance at something like that than it is to glance through the uh, textbook to help you remember something. So that will be available on starting on Friday. I left it available through Wednesday. That way I'll give you a reminder a week from today that don't forget you've got to take the quiz if you forgot about it over the holiday weekend. Homework number one on the first two chapters is due a week from today on September 3rd. And then the exam, first exam, yeah, I give four exams every three chapters, so we're coming, up, we're coming up quickly on the first one. Will be September 8th. I'm barring any major emergencies, I'm going to lock it to that day. So I'm not, it's not going to get put off at all. I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to be here on the 8th. So I'm going to be missing somebody else coming in. I'd rather have them come in and proctor an exam than have them come in and have to lecture. Whether that will change for later in the week, depending on if I get selected for anything on jury duty, then it's completely different. But at this point, I'm going to make sure at least the first day all we're doing is doing is the exam. All you have is the exam, and someone else will be in to proctor that for you. Questions? Nope. Nope. All righty. All right. Well, then our picture of the day for today. Uh, is uh, Milky Way, Milky Way Galaxy over Yellowstone Park. So Yellowstone in the foreground, one of the hot springs there being heated uh, from below a big magma chamber, a big hot spot in the Earth's uh, crust, right below the Earth's crust, that heats that up. And steam coming up from it, but then out, out in the distance, way off in the distance actually, is the Milky Way Galaxy, which is our own galaxy as we see it from inside. So we'll talk about our Milky Way a little more. We have a whole chapter on our galaxy. Uh, 
But this is what uh, this is what our, ga our galaxy looks like from inside. What does our galaxy really look like? Well, it actually looks a lot more like the picture from Monday. If you remember, the picture from Monday was a spiral galaxy. And we were looking at it, it had the long t tail stretched out from it. But this actually looks a lot, our galaxy actually looks a lot more like that. The difference is here, we're looking at the galaxy, we're inside it. So we're inside the galaxy looking out and seeing it. And it's very hard for us to determine what that looks like or to really just see what that looks like. A uh, similar thing would be, Perhaps if you are locked in this classroom. Oh no, don't, don't do that, don't do that. But if you were locked in this classroom and didn't know anything else, how would you determine what this building was like? From inside. You can't leave, you've got a couple windows, you might be able to look out. But could you tell how far it goes out in that direction or that direction? How many stories, is it 20 stories up there? Or is this the top? You'd have no way to know. You know there's probably some measurements, some different things you might be able to do. But if you couldn't physically leave, which is essentially what we're doing. We're stuck in one little tiny portion of our galaxy. We can't go zoom and fly out of it to see another part. So that's all we have is what we can see of our galaxy. There's a lot of measurements that we can make that we'll talk about to really be able to infer that our galaxy is a spiral. And we'll look at that again late, later on in the course when we come after we've gone through stars. We'll start talking about galaxies. And our galaxy will be the first one that we, that we talk about. Uh, with Yellowstone here, we were sort of discussing before class a little bit. That is, uh, the Yellowstone Park is actually a super volcano. So it is, a, a, it is volcanic activity. It, does, it will erupt at some point again in the future. Uh, last eruption was what? Did they tell me here? No, not here. Oh yeah, 600 and, 640,000 years ago. So it's due again. It will erupt again. Uh, that will be a major disaster when it occurs. I mean, that will, I think the article I read said, yeah, it'll, it'll, there'll be enough ash to crush roofs, with, but only in the states around Yellowstone. So we're safe out here, but only in those states around there. So that's, it's not just going to be a volcanic eruption that affects you know, Yellowstone Park and that small area. It'll affect the entire United States. Um, in terms of damage, uh, ash would be visible over all of the US, be that much. No, it wouldn't be. We wouldn't get feed of it out here. You might only get little traces, but you'd actually get volcanic ash all over the place. It would certainly wipe out everything around there for a decade. So everything. I mean, it would take a decade for you know plants to start to start working their way back into that area. So it would be a major problem. It would put a lot of uh, dust into the atmosphere, cooling things off significantly. So you know, winters would get significantly colder. Summers would not be as warm. So if you're down in Florida, if you live in Florida, probably wouldn't be all that bad. Because first of all, you're about as far away from that as you can get and stay in the US. And it's also warmer. If it gets a little bit colder, it's not going to be a big difference. If you were to live in Maine, Canada, imagine your winter is getting a little bit colder. You know, they're pretty cold as it is here. But you imagine getting you know, 10 degrees colder average in the winter. That's a big, big difference. And so it's something that's coming. Will it be in our lifetimes? I couldn't tell you. I don't think it's going to happen then. But it could be you know, tens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. So you may have another 50,000 years to wait before it erupts again. Or we might have a couple decades. You know, nobody, can t nobody can tell you. It's one of those things that we just, the science is not there to be able to predict volcanoes or earthquakes. We don't have that good of an understanding of the Earth. 
you know, we've only lived here for how many million years, but we still don't really completely understand our Earth. So, just what we wanted to start Wednesday with, I know, but pretty picture at least to look at there. Questions? So is yeah. that the cure for global warming? Or well, that would <laughs> That would certainly cool things off significantly. I mean, there would be a big drop in temperatures. That would be a very, I mean, that would make winters, you know, if you're in, you know, Maine, it would be pretty bad. How would that be the whole world? Like, would it would affect the whole world. That, I mean, the atmosphere, once, the, once that dust gets up high into the, I mean, it's not just put into the lower atmosphere. It's thrown up into the stratosphere. It's going to get into the jet streams, and it's going to be put all over. So it will cool off the entire world to some to some extent for a time. Now eventually it will fall out of the atmosphere, it'll be cleaned out of the atmosphere and you know from the Earth's point of view it's just a little hiccup. You know, big, big for us but you know for the Earth a little hiccup you know tens, hundreds of years later it'll be like nothing ever happened again. Just like now. You know, do you recognize that you know this volcano erupted hundreds of thousands of years ago? It looks fine. You got trees and plants and animals. You know, 640,000 years ago it didn't look like that. It was deserted. There was nothing. It was just covered in volcanic ash. So, yes? With a, a super volcano, mm -hmm. is it the same as when you have like a massive earthquake where it can shift the earth on its axis slightly? I would think it could, it could as well if you get a big enough, I mean this is, not just, this is not just like a little volcanic eruption like you have out in Hawaii where it's, you know, you can get a big eruption, it's confined right there, it doesn't, it does to some extent affect, but not really affect the rest of it. So yeah, you could probably have some, sh some things that would make minor changes to the, to the Earth's tilt. Maybe after it's then the United States would be a bigger country. <laughs> <laughs> Might be, I mean, who knows what it, what it would do to other things, you know. <laughs> so. The Rockies would be shifting. Yeah. Questions, questions? Alrighty, well, we'll make a jump back to, we were on Newton, so let's head back to Newton. Oh, we were going to start Newton. I hadn't really started Newton's laws of motion yet. Uh, we talked about Kepler's laws of planetary motion last time, and those were very specific, talking about just the planets and talking about just the planets in our solar system. That's all he knew, that's all he, he had, had data for, and his laws as compared to what we'll see with Newton's were just based on those observations. So it was, here's the observations, here's what fits. Why are the orbits of planets ellipses? I don't know, but they are. That's what the data show. Why they are it takes Newton to come along and to give us a why. Why do the planets move closer, move faster when they're closer to the sun? Now, makes sense to us now because we understand gravity. Uh, we're just starting Newton. We haven't gotten to gravity yet. You know, gravity was not something that was understood at this point. So the concept of gravity was not known. So why would the planet move, necessarily move faster when it's closer to the sun and slower when it's further away? Kepler saw that that is what happened. So his laws were not based on why, did not give us the why. Newton gave us the why as to why these things happen. And Newton uh, gives us three laws of motion and these are general. These apply to everything. So these apply to us here on Earth. These apply to the planets moving out in space. These apply to stars moving around the galaxy. These apply to the galaxies moving. All of Newton's laws of motion 
apply you know, everywhere in the universe. So his first law of motion states that an object at rest at rest remains at rest. Uh, an object that's at rest will remain at rest. It's not going to start moving. So if we put something down here, sit there and leave it, come back, you know, wait for the whole class, leave it sitting there, it's going to stay there. It's not going to go any place. So an object that is sitting at rest remains at rest. It's not going any place. That makes sense to us, right? The other part of it says that an object that's moving in a straight line at a constant speed is going to continue to do that as well. That we're not as familiar with, right? That means that if I start this moving and I give it a push, it's going to keep going forever. It didn't, did it? It stopped. Right? I give it a push, I started it moving. Newton's wrong. Well, I guess Newton's wrong. No, because the last part of it says what? Unless there is an external force and there's a frictional force between the table and any object I set on it. So there's a frictional force that changes its motion. If it were not for friction, this were an air hockey table turned on, right? If I gave that gave little puck a push, it's going to slide right across till it hits till it hits the wall. But it's going to go straight across. So an object that is sitting still will sit there unless I move it. I'm the extra. I can be the external force. Something else can be the external force. Something can whack and whack it, or something an earthquake, right? Earthquake would be an external force would cause it to move. But in the absence of any extra forces, it's going to sit there. So if we came back, wait, leave, put it there and come back Friday, it should still be right there. Unless, you know, another professor came in and decided to move it. Well, there's the external force. Somebody is actually moving. Otherwise, it's going to stay right there. But the big part of it says that an object moving in a straight line at a constant speed is also not going to change. So if we start something moving, it's going to continue moving unless an external force, unless something else changes it. So if a planet is moving in a straight line, you have an object, you know, the moon is moving in a straight line, it's moving out in space, it wants to do, it wants to move in a straight line. It doesn't want to change its position. We know that observing the moon, here's the earth, there's the moon, we know that it actually moves around the earth in what is very definitely not a straight line. Right? It's moving around in a circle in an ellipse. It doesn't want to do that. Newton says it wants to move in a straight line. So in order for it to be doing this, there must be some force. There's some force that's pulling it down towards the Earth to keep it from going in a straight line. If there was no force, the moon would be heading out in a straight line and we'd never see the moon again. That force is gravity. And we'll come back and talk about gravity in a little bit later today. But gravity is what is causing that orbit to change. It's causing the moon's motion to change. Now some other examples closer to Earth of Newton's first law. Right? I moved my little uh, eraser here. It's not moving. Still staying in the same spot. If I try moving it, it's only going to slow down because of friction. But some of the things you're more familiar with uh, in driving a car, right? You've all slammed on your brakes and gone forward, right? You, get, you keep going forward. So you were moving at some line at a constant speed. 
You stop the car, you don't want to stop. You keep going forward until the seatbelt stops you, the steering wheel stops you, until the windshield stops. You're going to keep going forward. The faster you try to stop, the bigger the force, the bigger that change will be, the bigger that external force. Same thing when you hit the gas, right? You slam the gas down, you get pushed back into the, into the seat. That's because you were at rest. You want to stay at rest. You don't want to start moving like the car is moving until the car pushes you and applies that force to get you moving. So you notice this, notice effects of Newton's first law. Uh, very often, I said driving is a good example, but really what it's saying is something at rest is going to stay there. And the same thing for straight line motion at a uniform speed. If something's doing that, if something's moving in a straight line at a uniform, it's going to keep doing that forever. And if it's not doing that, if something is not moving in a straight line or at a uniform speed, there has to be some external force acting on it. There has to be something. Could it be the engine of the car if you're turning it? Right? There's some external force that is causing that to, ch to change its speed. So that's Newton's first law of motion. Uh, Newton's second law of motion is typically, switch over here, is written as, uh, you might have seen it as, I'll give that form, there's another form up there, they're exactly the same. Um, it just says that the force exerted on an object, if you exert some force on an object, it will accelerate and that depends on its mass. It's also written as acceleration A is the force divided by the mass. Acceleration, what is acceleration? Acceleration is a change in speed. We're used to thinking of acceleration as hitting the gas pedal in the car and going faster and faster. That's one form of acceleration. That's the one we're always familiar with. But you are also accelerating when you hit the brake. Anytime your speed is changing, you're accelerating. We think of accelerating as being a positive thing. But acceleration in a physical sense just means that your speed is changing. So you can accelerate when you hit the gas. You can accelerate when you hit the brake. We call it deceleration, right? But it still is an acceleration. All an acceleration is is a change in the velocity. You're changing the velocity in some way. Or you can accelerate and keep your speed exactly the same. And that's because acceleration, it's a change in velocity The moon is also accelerating. I'll use my diagram I already have up here. The moon is accelerating. Why is it doing that? It's going at the same speed. Eh, let's ignore the fact that it's ellipsed right now and say it's pretty much a circle and it's pretty much moving at the same speed. Even ignoring that, it still is accelerating. Why? Because its velocity is changing. Its velocity is there. Later, its velocity is here. And there is a difference between speed and velocity. Speed is how fast you're going, right? 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour. Velocity 
is different. Velocity is 50 miles an hour due east. It has a direction associated with it. So it has a specific direction associated with it. So if you go and you're driving a car and you're driving due east at 60 miles an hour and you come to a curve in the highway and you turn so that you end up heading north at 60 miles an hour and if your speed might never change but your velocity has. Your velocity has changed not because the number of it has changed. It's still the same speed portion, 60 miles an hour, but you changed your direction. If you change the direction something is moving, you are also accelerating. So in reality, an acceleration can be going faster, it can be going slower, or it can simply be going at the same speed and changing your direction. So those are some different parts of what we mean by acceleration. So the moon is being accelerated. Its speed doesn't have to change, but its direction is changing. And that acceleration means there must be, in order for something to accelerate, there must be some force acting on it. Now what Newton's second law tells us is that the amount of that acceleration depends on two things. How much that velocity changes depends on the amount of force you apply. Right? If I push on the object a little bit, I'll get it going at a sm slow speed. If I give it a harder push, I can get it going at a faster speed. So the more force I apply to it, the faster I can get it moving. It also depends on the mass. The higher the mass of the object that we're applying this force to, the less it's going to accelerate. Right? Takes a lot more to accelerate a loaded semi-truck than it does a small car. Right? If I want to go out there and you have them both pushed in neutral and I want to push the car, I can get it moving, probably. Am I going to get the loaded semi-truck moving by myself? Probably not. If there were no friction, yeah, I could, might be able to, but you know, I'm not going to get that moving because its mass is so much larger, the acceleration is so small. So the amount of acceleration depends on how, how hard you push things and the amount of mass that it has, how much material is there. So that's Newton's second law that really tells us about the acceleration. This tells us how things want to move, the first law. Newton's second law tells us how things accelerate. So when there is some force outside, what's going to happen to it? Newton's third law equal and opposite I think, we think most of us have probably heard this one before somewhere. Object A exerts a force on object B, and then object B is going to exert the equal and opposite force on object A. That one we do, we do every single day. Uh, we walk around. We sit down. We're sitting on the chairs. Let's do that one. We're sitting on the chairs. You're exerting some force on the chair, right? You're pushing down on the chair just by the fact of sitting there. If that chair does not push up with you, with the exact amount of force that, with which you're sitting on it, then all of a sudden, Newton's second law says you're going to be accelerating. You're going to be moving. So if the chair doesn't push up on you, what happens? You're sitting on the ground all of a sudden. You broke the chair. So the chair has to push up with exactly that same amount of force. That's an example of Newton's third law. You're pushing down on the chair. The chair put, pushes up on you. Those two forces are exactly equal and cancel each other. If the forces cancel, then there is no force. 
and there's no acceleration. So you don't accelerate. You don't fall down to the ground. You don't have the case where the chair is pushing up on you harder than you're pushing down on it, in which case you end up moving up into the air. That would be kind of, that would be kind of interesting if you started floating all of a sudden because the chair pushes you up, pushes you up into the, into the air. But that's what we mean by equal and opposite. Everything is exerting opposite forces so that there is, if there's no net force, if everything balances, then nothing is accelerating. I can push on the board as hard as I want and as long as this you know, wall is nice and structurally sound, I'm, I'm not going to push it into the next room. I'm putting a lot of force on it, but it's pushing back at me with exactly the same amount. As long as it can do that, nothing's going to happen. If I push on something lighter, that's not going to happen. I'm going to actually get it moving. Yes, sir? Uh, based on these laws, with the sun having a stronger force than us, mm -hmm. and the planets circle the, the sun, right. doesn't everything circle the sun? Like, the moon should circle it, the sun instead of mm -hmm. the in a way, but really it also depends on, yes, the force is stronger, but we haven't, we'll get to gravity in a minute here. But the force of gravity also depends on how far you are away from something. So the closer you are, the sun has a gravitational force, but it gets weaker and weaker as you get further away from the sun. So does the Earth. So when you're in this confined area around the Earth, the Earth's gravity is stronger than the sun's at this location. Because here the moon is very close to us, whereas the sun to this scale is, you know, way off down across the, across out in the parking lots. So the sun is very much further away, so its force is actually less on the moon than the Earth's gravitational force on the moon at this point. Okay, I was curious because all the way up to Pluto, mm -hmm. the force still acts. Right, the force still acts. The force acts forever. So there is no end to the gravitational force. Uh, the sun is pulling on Pluto. It's pulling on the uh, Kuiper Belt objects beyond Pluto. It's pulling on comets. It's pulling on stars. You know, light years away. It's pulling on distant galaxies. It's very, it's negligible at that point. It's so tiny, but it's still there. It never actually becomes zero. That force between any two objects. You know, you're pulling on Alpha Centauri right now. Is the force very much? Not really. Alpha Centauri is pulling you. Now it's trying to pull you towards it. But the Earth's gravity is a lot stronger. The Sun's gravity is a lot stronger, so we, don't, we really wouldn't see that effect. That's the other, other point would be the Earth's gravity, right? If the Sun's gravity were so much stronger, then we wouldn't be standing here on the Earth. The Sun would be pulling us off the surface of the Earth. So the Earth's gravity, when you're in this confined area around it, you know, out through the satellites, through the moon, then the Earth's gravity is significantly stronger than the sun's gravity at that location. But as you get further and further away, there comes a point, you know, far beyond the Earth where, you know, the sun's gravity becomes stronger again because the Earth's is weakened. So it all really depends on, depends on, the, distance, on the distances. And we're going to look at that here in just, in just a minute. Alrighty. So that's Newton's three laws. Again, we had Kepler's three laws last time. This is Newton's three laws, which talk all about motion and how things, how things accelerate and different types of forces. Newton's third law is also the one that allows us to go places. Right? When you hit the car, when you hit the, hit the gas on the car, what happens? You're applying a force. Well, the tires are applying a force to the road and pushing backwards, so the road pushes you forward and you go. 
And if you get enough force there, you can get an unbalanced force and you can actually accelerate. You can actually apply more force in one direction. But the sun, but the road would then actually be pushing you forward. So it's actually a combination of those, of those forces. All right, so let's look at gravity. So we're talking about that here a minute ago. Uh, gravity is always directed down towards the center of the Earth. And it is an acceleration. It is a there is a force of gravity pulling things down to the Earth. So anything we drop is going to come down, smack, smack on the Earth. That's the Earth's gravity pulling it down because that's the strongest force there. Now, mentioned this, kind of mentioned this when we were talking about the Sun and the Earth. I'm pulling on this as well. You know, there's a gravitational force between me and this, so I'm pulling it. But the Earth's gravity is much stronger. The Earth's gravity is much stronger and overwhelms the minor force that I pull, I pull it with and actually will pull it down to the ground. It is essentially constant. It means it doesn't change a whole lot no matter where you are on the surface of the Earth. Uh, if you're deep down in the Earth to as far down as we can go in the Earth, which is essentially nothing, it's neg it doesn't change. You know, we can go down a mile or two, a couple miles into the Earth's surface. What are the deepest mines? You know, a couple miles down. Well, compared to thousands of miles to the Earth's core, it's nothing. You know, what's a mile or two? Big deal. Uh, even up on the highest mountains, again, very small compared to the whole distance to the Earth, the gravitational force does not change a whole lot. But it is always pulling things down, regardless of where you are on the Earth, and down being towards the center of the Earth. So that's why if you're in Australia, you're standing upside down. And you literally are, if you went outside the earth and looked at people, you know, people in Australia are standing, you know, down like that way. Their heads are pointing down from your perspective if you're looking at, you know, North Pole at the top. That's because our sense here is that everything is directed towards the center of the earth. At our latitude, you know, we're standing at about a 45 degree angle relative to straight up and down. Again, we don't notice it because everything is centered to the center of the earth, the way gravity works. So everything is going the same way, so we all, everything we see is the same. So it doesn't feel like we're really standing, you know, sideways the whole time on a 45 degree angle. But we really, I mean, if you go out, if you could go out into space and look down at the earth and be zoomed in enough to really see people, you'd see people standing, you know, at different angles as you go around the earth. And it's all due to the way gravity works. It always pulls everything down, straight down to the center. So it's always pulling straight down. So even if you're standing in Antarctica, gravity is now pulling you up. Right? It's pulling you up. Up is now, if you're defining north and south as up, your gravity is essentially pulling you up and holding you to the surface of the Earth. Now let's look at how gravity works here. Give you a little equation for it as to how gravity is set. And this is Newton's law of gravitation. It's incorrect. But we're still going to use it. It's wrong. It works almost all the time, but it's not perfect. We'll talk later when we get to black holes, we'll talk about Einstein's general relativity. That actually is a better description of gravity than uh, Newton's laws. But the force is the a slide there doesn't put the negative sign in it. It's actually negative. There actually is a negative sign here. The whole thing is negative. That really just means it's an attractive force. 
Not that it's a good-looking force, not that it's a good-looking force, but that it's a force that pulls things together. So the force of gravity is one that serves always to pull things together. Um, you know, anti-gravity is talked about, but there's no such thing that we know of that can actually push that pushes things apart gravitationally using gravity. But the force depends on two things. There's a, a couple things. There's a constant here, some number that is the gravitational constant. It depends on the masses of the objects, and it depends on the distance between them. Hmm. Doing good today. There we go. Distance between them. So how far those two objects are apart. So if you put two objects close together, the force is going to get stronger and stronger. If we put two objects further apart, it's going to get weaker and weaker. If we look at the force between two massive objects, two very uh, massive object and another massive object, it's going to be a lot more force. The higher those masses are, the larger the force is going to be. So if we want to look at it this way, look at the force between the Earth and the Sun, those are both pretty good sized numbers. It's going to be a lot of force. How does that compare with my force, my gravitational force on the Sun? I'm pulling on the Sun too, I have some mass, I pull on the Sun some amount. My mass is so much smaller than the Earth's that you know, the amount of pull that I'm providing is extremely tiny. But there is some force. You could put gravitational constant, if you want to do this calculation, you could put the gravitational constant in, you could look up the mass of the Sun, you could look up your mass, you could look up how far you are, figure out how far you are away from the Sun and calculate what the force is between you and the Sun. No matter what you do, you're never going to get that to come to zero. And that's kind of what the little graph is showing you here that the force drops off very quickly and that it will go that if you're at one, a certain distance you have some force. Don't worry about numbers, we just define it to be one there. If you move twice as far away, the force drops quite a bit, not by half, but by four times. And that's what they call an inverse square law. That's when this is raised to the second power down here. So it's not just the distance, but it's the distance times the distance. So if you go twice as far away, if you move the Earth, magically put the Earth twice as far away from the Sun as it is right now, the gravitational force between the two would not be half, but would be one quarter. If you move it three times away, all of a sudden it's one ninth. Five times away, one twenty-fifth. Ten times away, one one hundredth. A thousand times away, one one millionth. But no matter how far away you get it, it's never going to become zero. Is it going to get incredibly tiny? Yeah. So when you get to the point of figuring out the force between the Sun and another galaxy, it's not going to mean much. It's going to be incredibly tiny. But it's there. It's not going to be zero. You could calculate a number. You can actually calculate what that force would be. So that's Newton's law of gravity. Again, as I said, it's wrong. We're still going to use it because it works for 99.9%. Well, this works for everything in normal, everyday experience. Everything that you do here on Earth, Newton's law works beautifully. Uh, we get into some stuff in black holes where it really gets extreme and where Newton's law breaks down. And where you need general relativity to really be able to explain how gravity works. And we will talk about that a little bit later in the class. 
But for just about everything we do even, a Newton's law of gravity will be fine. So Newton's law of gravity is what keeps the sun. That's the pull of the sun, keeps the planets moving in their orbits. And this goes back to Newton's laws. We have the planets here. Here's the planet, nice little Earth here, orbiting around the sun. It's moving. Newton's first law says if it's moving, it wants to move in a straight line. So it wants to keep going along the red line here. It wants to move in a uniform, in a straight line at a uniform speed. If it's not doing that, there must be some force. There must be some force, gravity is pulling on it, trying to pull it into the sun. Right? If the Earth were not moving at all, if we could stop the Earth in its orbit right now, keep it from going around the sun, then it would be pulled straight in. It wants to move in a straight line. The combination of those two, the fact that it's moving in one direction at a pretty high speed and that the sun is pulling it inward, keeps it in a nice straight orbit, or a nice circular orbit around the sun. So Earth wants to go this direction. By the time it's moved a little bit, the sun has pulled it in and now it's here. Wants to do the same thing again, the sun has pulled it in and it ends up following a nice, essentially, a circular path around the sun. But it needs that force. It needs that force. There has to be a force because it's accelerating. It's accelerating because it's changing the direction in which it's moving. And we know there has to be a force because it's not following Newton's first law. Newton's first law saying an object at rest remains at rest. An object in a straight line motion at a uniform speed is going to keep doing that unless there's an external force acting upon it. So no external force. If there is an external force, it has to be occurring to keep things in a circular orbit. All right, well, we'll finish up here. I've got a couple more, couple more slides. When we talk about orbits, we always talk about the Earth orbiting around the sun, the moon orbiting around the Earth. That's really not correct. The Earth does not orbit around the Sun directly. They actually orbit around what we call the center of mass. Uh, a center of mass is just where the average mass would be if you averaged out. So if you have two people here of equal mass, then the center of mass is going to be halfway in between them. If you have three people here, two of, one of the mass on one side, one on this side, then that center of mass is going to be closer to the side with more mass on it. Now if you can imagine this, instead of doing two, start adding ten people. That center of mass moves closer and closer to where all the, peop to where all the people are. You're putting so much more mass. If you could squeeze a hundred people on that seesaw, right? squeeze a hundred people there, then the center of mass is essentially going to be right in with them, but not precisely. It's still going to be a little bit off. The person on the other side is still balancing it. And that's what this is really telling you, that the objects don't orbit around each other. The Earth does not orbit around the Sun directly. The Moon does not orbit around the Earth directly, but they really orbit around each other. And they orbit around the, the center of mass of the two. Now when you look at that for, and I think I have a diagram of it on the next slide, but if you have here the Sun and you have way over here the Earth, well, the Earth is incredibly tiny compared to the Sun. I'm not even close to being to scale. So in terms of size, you know, I do this Earth as a little dot out there to do them to scale. In terms of mass, if the center of the Sun is eh, somewhere around there, 
then maybe the center of mass is right there someplace, real close. Real close to the center of the sun. But that means that the sun is actually orbiting around as well. So the Earth makes a big long orbit around the sun. The sun is making a little teeny tiny orbit around the center of mass. We could replace this with moon and earth and do the same thing. The earth is actually orbiting around the center of mass of that system. So where we really see this is when we start looking at stars. We start watching stars orbit each other and you can get patterns where you get stars that you know, orbit like this. You have one star orbiting and another star orbiting. And you could really see both stars moving. If they're both of equal mass, then the center of mass is going to be somewhere in between them. And that's where they're going to orbit around. When we look at the Earth moving around the Sun, it's not a bad approximation to say that the Earth is orbiting the Sun. But technically, it's not true. The Sun is actually orbiting as well. And it's a little more, if you look at Jupiter, that circle would be a little bit bigger for Jupiter because Jupiter has significantly more mass, 300 times the mass of the Earth. So that circle would be a little bit bigger. Jupiter is moving the Sun a little bit more. But that's what we mean by center, by center of mass. We'll see it when we look at you know, stars that are in binary systems that are pa paired, that there are, is a central portion around which they're orbiting. But we can watch both of those stars move. It's not one star moving around the other or you know, any two objects moving around each other. They're all moving around each other together. So that's what I mean by center of mass. This is just trying to explain center, center of mass with something a little bit closer to home. You know, a little seesaw, if you get two people of equal mass and you put them the same distance away from the middle, they're going to balance. That makes this your central portion, your center of mass where everything balances. If you want to balance it with two people on one side and one on the other, assuming everybody has the same mass, then you've got to move this a lot closer to these two people. Otherwise, it's not going to balance. There's going to be a lot more weight, a lot more mass here. And that would pull down if you tried to leave the, center, the fulcrum right in the middle. You, this side would pull down. So in order to keep that balance, as you move more and more people on this side, you have to move that further and further over to get everything to balance. And that's a little bit more about how the things orbit. And I think I have a better diagram here. Yeah, here's what we have with two stars here. Two stars are about equal mass. So this star at position one, you have a star there and a star there. At two, you have it here and here. Three, you have it here and here. They're, all, they're both orbiting around um, the center of mass. Where you average out their mass to be is going to be exactly halfway in between them all the time. If they're of exactly the same mass. If you look at one where you have this star has a mass of one, one what, one whatever unit you want to use. And this other star has a mass of two units. This is now twice as massive, so it's not going to move near as much. And now the center of mass each time, there's position three, there's position three. If you connect those two, well here, it's a little bit closer to the more massive star. A little bit further away from the less massive star. And you can continue that out till you get to something like a planet. Well, there's the planet orbiting around the sun in a big orbit. Here's the center of the sun, as I drew on the board, making a little tiny orbit around that center of mass. So 
Newton's laws really tell us everything that Kepler gave us. They can really explain everything that Kepler got. They can explain, Newton could explain with his law of gravity as to why the planets are, are ellipsi, elliptical orbits. Actually finding that elliptical orbits aren't required. Elliptical orbits are a special case. That you can get elliptical orbits. You can actually get other kinds. You can get circular orbits are allowed. They're just very rare because it's that perfect case where everything is exactly a circle. If you're even a tiny bit off, it's not going to be a circle. But you can also get other types of orbits according to Newton. Newton says that you can get, no, no squares, no triangles, nothing like that. But you can also get orbits that are not bound to the star. Meaning that if you have the sun here, you can have an orbit that comes in and goes out and never comes back again. This is done often for some comets. They might come in from the outer solar system, zip by the sun and head out again and will never come back. Some comets are in shorter orbits that do return. That's an unbound orbit, meaning that it's not bound to the sun. It's going to head off into interstellar space and that little comet is never going to be seen here again. And these can be in the shape of parabola or a hyperbola. In fact, generally they're hyperbola. Parabola is just a very special case where it, the thing just barely escapes. It just escaped exactly. It had exactly the amount of energy it needed to escape. So typically orbits are going to be elliptical or hyperbolas, which hyperbola is just a little bit more stretched out than a parabola. So Newton says that we can have uh, different types of orbits, not just elliptical, which uh, Kepler told us. Also, we looked at Kepler's second law. Well, Newton actually explains why objects now move faster when they're closer to the sun. Right? There's a gravitational force between them. That force is stronger when we're close to the sun and less strong when we're further away. So that explains why objects move, closer, move faster when they're closer to the sun. Kepler's third law, actually Newton calculated it. You could actually calculate Kepler's third law. Remember Kepler's third law said a cubed equals p squared. You cube the distance and you compare it to the square of the period and they were the same. Well, Newton was actually able to do that and able to come up with the more complicated equation that explains exactly how those work and explains that you can use it. It doesn't, it's not quite so simple. It actually depends on how massive the objects are. So there's actually a big constant in there that depends on the mass of the two objects. Now, Kepler's worked fine because it worked for the solar system and everything was relative to the sun. But if we look at other solar systems, we can now use Kepler's third law to determine the mass. It's our one way to be able to weigh things in the universe and the only way we can weigh things. Other than getting a sample of a moon rock and, being, and bringing it back to Earth and being able to weigh that and determine the mass, that's it. If we want to figure out how much mass there is in one of the moons, uh, orbiting around one of the other planets. This is the only way we can do it. Determine the mass of the other planets. This is the way we can do it using Kepler's third law. All right, well let me finish up and just give you the summaries here and then we will get on to chapter two next time. So this kind of just reviews what we've gone over in this chapter. Uh, we spent the first day going over a little bit of the history, kind of skimming through that very, very quickly, going through thousands of years in a uh, short time. Early models were geocentric. They could explain retrograde motion, but not very easily. It was very difficult to explain the retrograde motion.
The heliocentric model still had its problems, but was much easier in terms of explaining why planets appeared to move backwards in the sky. Galileo's observations supported the heliocentric model. Again, they didn't prove it. Can't prove a scientific theory, uh, right? You can verify it, and he gave a lot of evidence for it, but he actually did not, was not able to prove it. It took a lot more to be able to really give us good, solid, direct evidence that the sun is staying still. We looked at Kepler's three laws again last time. Those were really just based on observations, and they were based on what he saw. What did I see? What do I see in this data? The planet, the orbits are ellipses. Why are they ellipses? I have no clue. I just know that they are elliptical as an example there. And then finally, we looked at this time today, we looked at Newton's laws. We went over Newton's three laws of motion. And they explained that everything that Kepler saw. Newton gave us the why. Why did the, star, why did the planets orbit around the sun? Kepler just saw that they did and said that they did and worked out his orbits accordingly. But Newton was able to give us the why. And then we looked at the gravitational force today. So force of gravity between two objects depends on the masses and depends on the square of the distance between them. So I'm going to stop there. We finished up chapter one. Hopefully you got another clear day. If you haven't gotten a solar observation yet, about 1.15 today would be good. Unless we get a big storm, got a big storm scheduled to come in that I didn't look, I didn't look up yet. And if you have that paper, you can turn me in a paper on Friday. Again, separate sheet. You can submit it on D2L. Any of those are perfectly, perfectly fine. Questions? No, no, no. Have a good rest of the day, and I will see you on Friday.